This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased and honored to have with us Professor Jonathan Fennell. Professor Fennell is a senior lecturer in the Department of War Studies at King's College London. And today we are speaking about his new book, Fighting the People's War, the British Commonwealth Armies, and the Second World War. Welcome, Professor Fennell. Thanks for having me, Charles. Professor, what uh, was the genesis of your book? Well, Cambridge asked me to write a book on the British Army a number of years ago as part of their new series on armies of the Second World War. Um, I was, needless to say, delighted at the opportunity, but I, but I suggested to Cambridge that maybe a bigger book was needed, that the, the only way really to understand the British experience in the Second World War was to look at the entire imperial experience. So I had to bring in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, India, Canada, you get the idea. So it was a great opportunity um, given to me by Cambridge, and then I, I rode with this and trying to, to expand the project into something that I thought would be um, even more valuable, and that's how the whole thing kicked off. Now, uh, what is the thesis of your book as such? Sure, there, the book is about three key things. So primarily it's about the great battles and how they were won and lost. But most scholars of the British Empire would situate the end of the empire, the dissolution of the empire, in and around the period of the Second World War. So there's a big chunk of the book which is about empire and the end of. And then the third part of the book is really an examination of social change. So how did those individuals who fought for Britain and the empire during the war go on to change the world? How did they vote? How were they politicized by their experience and how did that manifest in their actions um, both during the war and after 1945? So those are the kind of three key themes of the book. What source material and primary primary documents did you employ uh, and use in this book which had not been used previously by other historians? Oh, I was so lucky. Um, I found a series of sources that really haven't been interrogated before. Censorship summaries of soldiers' mail. So soldiers write home to their loved ones and their friends, and these letters are censored for obvious security reasons, but they're also, they were also used as morale reports, weekly, bi-weekly morale reports. And I found 925 of these censorship summaries spread all across archives, across the, um, across the Commonwealth, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Canada, and indeed in Britain. And these censorship summaries were based, I estimate, on about 
17 million letters sent during the war. So they give this incredible insight into the attitudes, beliefs, opinions of ordinary men and women um, during this global conflagration. So they they were really, the, the study really is driven by those sources. But I was also kind of lucky to find a whole series of other sources which allowed me um, a view into kind of social change um, and how soldiers were politicized by the war. I was able to find the voting behavior, the voting statistics for soldiers in key elections during the 1940s in New Zealand, in Canada, in Australia. I was able to break these uh, statistics down by, in many cases, where soldiers were situated in this global war. So I could get a sense of how soldiers were voting um, and whether, say, proximity to combat was in any way influencing their voting behavior. So these kind of two sources, um, really very, very special, very, very new. Um, I spent a lot of time getting to grips with the occupational data of soldiers. So by looking at their pre-war occupations, I was able to build an idea of class. So who were these individuals who fought for Britain and the Empire in the Second World War? And the book provides the first real social class surveys certainly um, the British and Commonwealth armies in the Second World War and arguably of any army in the Second World War. So I think those kind of three, those three categories of sources were really radically new and underpin much of the study and allow me to, to really challenge the, the dominant narrative, right? The story we're told is the Churchillian narrative told by the great men, to a lesser extent the great women. But these sources allow me to interrogate the experience of the, the ordinary citizen soldier and what is really gripping and fascinating, I hope readers will find, is the story is radically different. They saw the war in a way that Churchill just didn't recognize. What, what exactly do you mean when you say in the book that uh, uh, your uh, manuscript explores the British Commonwealth experience in a, quote, more democratic manner, unquote? Yeah, I think that's really... Kind of trying to get to grips with shining a light on the experience of ordinary citizens. So if you if you think about, I mean, I guess some of the some of the situations we're faced today in the United States and Great Britain and other places, um, you're often left with, left with a feeling, I think, that you know those in power don't have as much power and influence as as they might think that they do. In fact, battles, wars, the fate of communities and states often. T- is often dependent upon the behavior of individuals, on small groups of individuals taking risks um, with their own lives for the greater good. So by shining a light on the experience of ordinary citizen soldiers, I think not only do we get a better idea of um, why events occurred, but also, I guess, yeah, to, you know, shine a light on the team. Everybody's playing a part in these great events, not just the Churchills, the Roosevelts, but also you know, Tommy Atkins, etc. When you say that you wish to give an equal amount of agency to the average foot soldier as to, say, a um, general in command, you're surely not arguing that, a, say, a Batman, Batman, for not familiar with the term, is a um, servant of um, an officer. Um, you're not giving the same amount of agency a uh, to a Batman, as you would say, give uh, to Field Marshal Alexander? <laughs> no, I mean, I guess what we need to do is integrate the two, right? So too many histories really tell the story only of Field Marshal Alexander, right? 
Um, all his records survive. He wrote extensively about the war past, you know, after 1945. And so the story becomes his story and the way him and other serious senior people um, saw the war. But I think it's not, it's not to say that one is more important than the other. I think you have to integrate the two. So bringing in the story of the Batman and really understanding his experience, what he wanted, how he behaved, that sheds light on the decisions of the great men and women. And at times we see that those decisions actually didn't play out as they expected. At times we see that um, you know, those individuals had very little control over what was going on. And it was it was that individual, that Batman, probably not the Batman, right? it's probably a... Um, an infantry man or an artillery man um, was changing the face of of a nation. So, I mean, I don't want to oversell it, right? But it's, I think it's by integrating the different perspectives, you get a much richer sense of how history unfolded between 1939 and 1945. Now, at the end of your first chapter, you played down what uh, one could label the structuralist explanation for the military defeat suffered by the Anglo-French, uh, subsequently just the British, British Commonwealth forces in the period from 1940 to 1942. Can you elaborate why you um, don't entirely accept the structuralist explanation? Yeah, this was one of the things that kind of surprised me most about engaging with the secondary sources and some of the primary sources. Um, when you look, when you get deep down into it, when you look at, say, the way the army engaged with modern ideas about war fighting, they were actually, you know, when you get, get into the doctrine, much more reflective and creative than much of the literature had suggested. Then you've kind of a, a, a wave of kind of new secondary literature with the likes of David Edgerton and others that, again, is criticizing this sense that Britain is weak pre-war. Think of John Darwin's magisterial book on the British Empire recently. Um, so when you look at it materially, um, the empire has plenty of kit. When you look at it doctrinally, the, the army and the military are thinking about war in a creative, reflective way. Um, so, I mean, that, that, that was surprising. So it left me wondering, you know, are there other explanations for how and why everything went, went wrong? It wasn't preordained, and I guess the historian would, would feel passionately about this, right? That there's nothing inevitable in history. Um, there is agency. And I just thought that more needed to be said about the emergency and how individuals reacted to the emergency at all levels of the state, rather than this kind of dominant narrative again of everything being preordained, that great mistakes were made during the interwar years and therefore the fall of France was inevitable or British, the inadequate British performance in the early years of the war could be seen coming from miles away. And um, there's a much more balanced view. And I certainly don't think the structuralist um, approach provides the best or the strongest answer. But not the noticeable lack of enthusiasm uh, in the UK and the dominions which you um, uh, note in the book as well as in, um, say, Germany or France. <coughs> in the case of Germany, of course, Germany at that time at least uh, nominally claimed itself a Volksgemeinschaften or people's community. Um, could not that lack of enthusiasm for the war be purely derived or mostly derived from the fact that this was near, 1939 was a mere 21 years from the end of the Great War, and depending upon which country you're talking about, 
anywhere from 10 to 12 or even higher, perhaps, percentage of uh, men between the age of, say, 18 and 40 or 45 have been either killed or severely wounded. Wouldn't that yep. by itself suffice to explain, to some extent, um, the lack of enthusiasm, again, not only in the UK and in the Dominions, where uh, your book elaborates on the fact that uh, there was still a great deal of discontent even after the um, um, economic recovery of the uh, early to mid, even to some extent late 30s, depending on which country you're talking about. Um, that, that mere fact that uh, the lack of enthusiasm because of the long-term unemployment, etc., suffered by the working classes and lower classes, etc., in the interwar period, that per se um, could only be viewed in conjunction with, perhaps, this uh, very short-term uh, going back to war and knowing that there was a good likelihood, or at least in terms of percentage terms, possibility of being killed. I mean, super point, really. I mean, no one, no country, I think, was enthusiastic about a war in 1939. And it's really interesting, say, to read Nicholas Stargardt's study on the German war, where he, again, he plots German public opinion through much of the war. And he outlines this, this real sense of foreboding and nervousness amongst the German people with them. Um, with the outbreak of hostilities. I mean, so let's, let's, I mean, the book is about, say, the army, the British and Commonwealth armies. And so part of the approach in the early parts of the war is, the early parts of the book is to try and understand who these individuals were. And what I found by doing social class surveys, etc., is to identify that a lot of them are working class and lower middle class. So the, the, those cohorts of society that really, really, really struggled during the, the interwar period. Now, other cohorts of society, as, as you well know, were less affected. In the context of the British war effort, many of these individuals go into the Air Force and the Navy. And I mean, thinking forward, a couple of books maybe in my own kind of um, career, I would really love to engage with those questions going forward. But the Navy and the Air Force perform much better, right? They come from the part of society that maybe feels a closer connection with the state. And so much of chapter two in the book is looking at this relationship between the individual and the state. English-speaking South Africans were much more likely to get involved in Britain's war than Afrikaans-speaking South Africans. English-speaking Canadians were much more likely to get involved in the war than French-speaking Canadians. So it's not that every, nobody wanted to fight. By no means was that the case. It just was some people were more inclined to fight in Britain's war and to fight with enthusiasm in Britain's war than others. And it's really pointing, I suppose, shining a light on the, the character of the British empire, the British state in this period. It's, it's much more fractured and complex and less cohesive, perhaps, than we might remember. So it's, a, it's kind of a complicated picture of varying loyalties and connections to the state, and that influenced mobilization and the, the willingness people had to serve. That would be the, the way I'd kind of categorize it, um, rather than saying everybody was had no time for it or weren't up for it. I think some people wore, other people weren't, and it depended on their relationship with the state. Including the officer corps, how up, unrepresented was the British Army in terms of social class, and how did uh, that um, differ, if at all, from the Great War? 
super question. I mean, I think for, it is it is unrepresentative. There's no two ways about it. Um, it is a much more working class and lower middle class army. Um, the professional classes, on the whole, avoid service in the army. Um, the officer class is comes from a higher social class. Over the course of the war, it becomes less so, um, and you get more individuals from grammar schools um, becoming officers than from private schools, say, in the early years of the war. And I think, I mean, I know, say, Gary Sheffield is writing a book at the moment on the British Commonwealth armies in the two world wars, and we'll be looking at that very, very question you asked. So how does it compare to the First World War? I think the sense that I would have from, you know, my experience of the literature on the First World War, that is, it's potentially more working class in the Second World War, that there's a greater effort to, to say, keep the poets and the, and the scientists out of the trenches in the Second World War than had been the case in the First World War. How important post El Alamein uh, was Field Marshal Montgomery's uh, colossal cracks doctrine for the way that the Eighth Army fought for the rest of the war? Yeah, I mean, so we can think of wars as issues and problems of mobilization, battles of will, right? How do you how do you get your society to to suffer and strive over many many years? But wars are also conflicts of ideas, right? There's a necessity for creativity. So the doctrine, the way the British and Commonwealth armies fought in the early years of the war was quite reflective and creative. It required a lot of responsibility, it placed a lot of responsibility on junior officers to act as they saw fit in contact with the enemy. The problem was you had a poorly trained uh, and pretty poorly motivated citizen army um, in the early years of the war. We might go into more detail over why that was the case. So in and around El Alamein, this, this kind of traditionally viewed turning point in the Second World War. Montgomery, who is a divisive character, let's face it, he rocks up in the desert, he sees what's in front of him, and he fairly correctly diagnoses the problem, which is, again, you have a poorly motivated um, citizen army that is averagely trained. And so he says, we're going to rein everything in. We're going to centralize command and control power, if you will, on his person. So he develops what some scholars have referred to as a colossal cracks approach, basically a firepower heavy approach to fighting. So he masses the artillery and blasts the German and Italian forces out of the El Alamein line in October and November 1942. Now, it's not spectacular. It's not pretty. But what it is, is it's, it's kind of strategic. It's, it's sensible. It's practical. This is the problem he was faced with. These were the tools he had, and he found a way to get the job done. So in many ways, I'd ask the question, kind of, what more is a general supposed to do? I, I'm, you know, I'd be very aware of Monty's character flaws and the mistakes that he made later in the war, but I think in this, in this moment, in, you know, when he rocks up in the desert in August 1942, he plays a really important role in reanimating, um, driving forward and thinking again about how the British and Commonwealth armies should fight. And it's, it's quite a serious contribution, um, not only in the context of the British and Commonwealth effort, but I, I would say in the context of the whole Second World War. Now, the next question, I suppose, comes to the crux of the book, so feel free to elaborate at length, or conversely, we can come back to it any time. But the question is, how much of the recovery in British Imperial forces fortunes in the battlefield after the summer of 1942 uh, was due to improvements in morale and or 
how much uh, due to the fact of massive superiority, Allied superiority in arms, material, numbers of troops, as well as uh, intelligence, a.k.a. the ultra-machine? Cracking mm, question. Um, right, so, I mean, the natural historian answer is a little bit of column A, a little bit from column B, and a little bit from column C. So, what the book kind of explores is how all those factors interrelated um, across time, and how at some moments technology and firepower was central. So that's you know, LLMA, what we just talked about. And at other times, morale was really a defining factor in explaining combat outcomes. So, you know, technology on its own, or massed firepower on its own, can't win a war. You have to get individuals getting out of a slit trench, closing with the enemy, um, and ultimately taking prisoners, wounding, or, or, or killing them. And that requires a very serious individual mobilization um, from each individual participant in a war. Um, at times, there were problems with morale. So I engage in great depth, say, with the uh, second and third battles of Casino, famous battles um, south of Rome in, in 1944, and explore how, in the context of the mountainous terrain and the limited number of you know, really usable and good roads, everything really depended upon the, the willingness of the individual infantrymen to close with the enemy and get the job done. And in around this time, the New Zealanders in particular are faced with a really challenging domestic situation. So about 6,000 New Zealanders are sent home for a break. Right? They've been fighting since the start of the war, they're exhausted, and the New Zealand government agrees to send them home. They get home and what they see is a community that is living well off the war, making plenty of money. Um, and worse than that, 35,000 young men of category A, so really fit, strong young men, working in essential industry who they see, or they think, should be sent to the Middle East, back to um, the Mediterranean, to fight in their stead. And effectively, a mutiny breaks out. They refuse to go back. This means that the New Zealanders, who are left with this really challenging problem um, in the second and third battles of Casino, um, are without many of their veteran troops, their, their best trained, most experienced fighters. It also gets out amongst the New Zealanders that there's a mutiny going on back home. Many were due to, to leave to go home on their own little break, um, which was now delayed due to this, this, this mutiny back in New Zealand. So dynamics on the home front, ideas of justice and procedural justice and fairness, um, you know, were, were central to the soldiers' experience. And when you start looking at, say, rates of battle exhaustion, sickness rates in New Zealanders, and even the censorship summaries, which go into explicit detail on how this evolving mutiny affected the mind of the soldier in Italy, you see that you know, technology alone, firepower alone, can't explain what, are, you know, what, what, what went wrong in the second and third battles of Casino. Morale also played a role. So you get the, you get, you know, it depends on the situation, it depends on the terrain, it depends on the relationship between the soldier and his fellow soldiers, it depends on the relationship between the soldier and the institution, in this case the army, it depends on the relationship between the soldier and the state. In the case of the casino um, and furlough mutinies, the relationship with the home front and the state undermined New Zealand morale and undermined the performance of the British and Commonwealth armies in those battles. So it's really about 
getting deep into the sources, understanding how morale interrelates with doctrine, how it interrelates with technology, um, and, and then trying to understand the outcome of each individual battle. Having said that, you do see this fascinating evolution, right, over the course of the, of the years post-1942. So in terms of doctrine, the, the British and Commonwealth armies start to be really quite creative again. So if colossal cracks is brought in in the West to deal with the crisis in the desert in 1942, it doesn't work that well in the mountains of Italy because you can't dominate ground with artillery if there's vast mountains and few roads. And by 1944, the armies in Italy and in Northwest Europe are starting to recognize that this, this method of fighting isn't really effective and it's not getting the job done quick enough. You know, the British and Commonwealth, the empire needs the war to be won quickly and it needs to be at the center of that story if Britain is to maintain its place in the world. If it isn't to hand over the baton to America and the USSR post, post-war. So by the end of 1944, certainly by the start of 1944, Montgomery starts to recognize the limits to this approach. And he starts to think again. He starts to return or try to return mobility to the battlefield. And it takes time. Um, There's a learning process that takes place, which is investigated in the book. And really, by 1945, you have a series of armies in the West that has effectively gone back to the doctrine of 1939, which is a much more devolved doctrine that empowers junior officers to make decisions as they see fit. So Rosmonti had centralized command and control on his being in 1942. By late 1944 and 1945, he started to hand it back to his subordinates who were, by this stage of the war, better trained. They have, as you pointed out, a vast amount of technology and equipment to fight the war. And the result is a much more improved performance. Now, what's, what's interesting, so that's the story in the West to a degree, this complex interaction between different factors. The story in the East is slightly different because at no stage really can you centralize command and control in a jungle. It's just impossible terrain. You can't see five meters in front of you, so how can you really have a commander-in-chief you know, miles behind the line making decisions in any sort of meaningful way? So the decision is made really right from the start, not to roll back on devolving command and control, but to really go for it 100%. And post the disasters in 1941-42, where, I mean, frankly, the British and Commonwealth armies get utterly trounced by a much smaller force uh, in the Japanese army in Malaya and Burma. Um, they bring in vast kind of focus training um, processes. And the army in India and the army in Australia starts to train and train and train again. And you see the development over time of a much more kind of professionalized army across the imperial forces as training turns citizen soldiers broadly into regulars, into professional soldiers. And so the significance to a degree of some of the ideological and morale problems become less acute because you just have a much more professional, organized, tidy organization. While all this is going on, the army it hasn't, you know, hasn't lost sight of the ideological issues. It says, okay, I recognize that you have a mostly working class and lower middle class armed forces and... Um, that is in many ways frustrated with um, the world that they had experienced in the 1930s, that once a, you know, in, in inverted quotes, a new Jerusalem post-1945, and the army in the West and the East starts talking about social change. 
1940, late 1942, you've probably heard of the Beverage Report, right? The, the blueprint for a welfare state was released in the United Kingdom. It became public knowledge amongst the British Army, really, in early 1943. And it just goes through the British Army like a knife through butter. They love it. They can't get enough of it. This is the thing the army wants. They're happy to fight as long as they go back to a better world post their sacrifice. Now, the problem is, right, the Conservative-led government under Churchill says, not a chance. And perhaps understandably so. It says, we'll talk about social change once you get the job done, once the war is won. That isn't what, you know, Tommy Atkins wants to hear. He wants to know now that there will be social change and then he will get the war won. So there's this disconnect between Churchill's understanding of the war and the ordinary soldier's understanding of the war. And the army effectively takes a step into this arena and tries to solve the problem with army education. It says, right, we can't promise social change, but I'll tell you what we can do. We can talk about it. So they bring in army education, ABCA, which is the Army Bureau of Current Affairs, and this kind of dynamic educational um, kind of department in the army plays a really big role in, in kind of placating this desire for social change and teaching the soldier in many ways about the state. It's like a mass civics lesson for the whole of the you know, young male population of the British Empire. So young Brits learn about parliament. They learn about how the system works. They learn about how to direct their vote in order to achieve their political ends. And this, of course, then feeds through to the third part of the book, which is all the stuff about social change. So the war, in part, politicizes soldiers because they they think about meaning. You know, stuck in a trench, you have a lot of time to think, what are you fighting for? The war teaches soldiers how to direct that politicization. So army education educates the soldiers about democracy. And then, during the war, and certainly after the war, the soldiers make good on that dynamic and they vote in a manner that constructs the world as they want it. And so what do you get in 1945 in the United Kingdom? Labour landslide victory, NHS, etc. You get Labour victories in Australia in 1943. You get a Labour victory in uh, New Zealand in 1943 in a very left-wing vote um, amongst soldiers. Um, in Canada in 1945. So it all kind of fits together. There's a, all these dynamics playing out, um, interweave to produce better performance and ultimately social change as well. Overall, your assessment of the Eighth Army in the Sicilian and Italian campaigns is not, was not, from your perspective, very positive. Uh, why was that? Yeah, I suppose. Is that fair? It's it's not it's not a thing of great beauty, is it? I mean, they get the job done in North Africa, and there's a I think there's a very positive story about disaster to to victory. Um, uh, in Tunisia and Italy is it, harder to to find kind of a positive narrative, and even Monty himself, when he leaves Italy on being appointed um, commander of 21st Army Group for the invasion of Northwest Europe, Normandy, D-Day, etc. He says in his, in his kind of diaries, and his memoirs, we made, a, we made a mess of it, you know, and what are we going to do? So I think there was just, you know, a multiplicity of problems that were never 
that weren't really addressed until late 1940, 1944. So you know, the unwillingness of the government to buy into the beverage report leads to really quite considerable morale problems. You know, I've already talked a little bit about the New Zealand issue and how they felt this disconnect between the state and themselves. Very similar dynamics were going on in South Africa, where the South African authorities, having brought their forces home after victory in North Africa, asked the troops if they'd go again. They, the troops had to sign a new oath to serve outside of Africa, and only a tiny proportion of the troops said that they'd do that. So South Africa didn't put a, you know, a land formation against the enemy in 1943, and it was only in 1944 that they managed to get an armoured division at all into combat, contact with the, with the enemy. So these morale kind of issues really do not help the performance of the British and Commonwealth armies in Italy. And you can't lose sight of the fact that the Germans fight with extraordinary um, determination, make good use of, I mean, if you've ever been to Italy and walked some of these battlefields, the close to impossible terrain. And so even though the Allied armies had vast material resources and resources that were you know, many, many multiples more impressive than what the Axis had, um, you know, I think the morale issue does does play out in a, in a, in a big way in, in Italy. Um, allied to just the sheer challenge of fighting along a mountainous country. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Could not one upshot of your book be that in a fully democratic and nominally egalitarian society, the amount of sacrifice that one can expect on the battlefield from conscript or volunteers army, armies uh, was more limited than uh, what was the case in the Great War? Uh, it's. I mean, I really do want to engage with that question over the course of really the whole 20th century. You know, going forward in terms of what I'm interested in, how do you how do you answer that question? My my sense is that soldiers or citizens were willing to sacrifice if you know, in part, if they thought that they would be rewarded for it. So my my sense is you have say American soldiers been promised quite serious prizes for commitment in terms of the GI Bill and post-war gratuities. You see Canadian soldiers getting vastly more sums than, say, British soldiers post-war, and again, in terms of gratuities. So there's something about the way the individual relates to the state. Does the indiv- is the individual getting something in return for sacrifice? And does the individual see the process as being fair? I think fair- I mean, fairness just comes through so many times in the censorship summaries, it's it's phenomenal, and I don't think it's necessary that that democracies are are weaker. Um, and you've got to remember, you know, the, these states were still, you know, certainly in the context of Britain, it's still in some ways a fledgling democracy. I know that might sound strange, but you only have the female vote in the early 20th century. They're still becoming more inclusive democratic countries. So it's. In some ways, these democracies failed to convince their their working classes to to sacrifice. 
And again, I come back to this point about, you know, say the Battle of Britain, where you have young, in many cases, say more affluent individuals um, taking really extraordinary risks with their lives to defend Britain. Those were the individuals in the Air Force who had perhaps gained more from the state, who had a more a bigger buy-in with the state. So the relationship between the state and the individual, whether it's a democracy or a dictatorship, I think is, is the key dynamic. And how the state can convince the individual that it is on their side and that the individual is, is part of the state's story. And at times, you know, as wonderful a historical figure as Churchill is, as remarkable was his performance in the Second World War, he wasn't a man of the people, was he? He wasn't a man who understood the plight of the of the working classes. And so his inability to connect beyond this idea of a crusade, and again, the censorship summaries are kind of critical. They say, the soldiers have no interest in a crusade for empire. They'll crusade for a, for a better post-war world for them, if that's what Churchill wants to talk about. But a crusade for the greatness of the British nation is, is completely alien to them. They want a better life for their kids, for their wives, for their futures, for their generations to come. So it's, you know, I, I know we like to talk about good and bad, and certainly in the context of the Second World War, um, and there's no doubt that we were on the side of the angels. It was still a, it was still, you know, wars are terribly divisive. They, put, they pit parts of the population against each other. Nobody wants to be the only individual to die. You know, everybody wants to get through it themselves. And so I think by kind of in, Engaging with the dirty, tough negotiations that took place between individuals and the state, we get a much, much richer and I think perhaps more real view of what war does to a state and the extent to which the state needs to needs the support of individuals. It needs you and me and listeners to feel that it's that they are connected to it. Otherwise, they won't take the kind of risks that are required to win global major wars. Well, following from my last question, in Lord Moran's book on Churchill, uh, there are several comments during uh, the years of the, covered by your book um, by, among others, Field Marshal Alexander, the gist of which was that the British Tommy of the Second World War was not of the same level as his predecessor of the Great War. Would you agree or disagree with that? I would disagree quite passionately um, with that assessment. Now, I think you can say that the Tommy in the Second World War fights arguably less effectively, which is, which is critical enough. But I don't think that was in any way because those individuals were in some way inferior to their fathers and uncles. I think the context is so different. Having seen, you know, the extraordinary sacrifice of those who came before them, having lived through the dismal years of the Depression, and then, you know, really to to not be given something powerful to fight for. I mean, they were very clear what they were fighting against, right? Fighting against Nazi tyranny. But even then, there wasn't a widespread knowledge of the true evils of Nazism, say, in 1940. So they needed to be given something more powerful, I think, and coherent to fight for. So I think there's a sense of maybe in the context of 1418, the British working classes fights for the idea of empire 
it you know there's still a concept of individuals know their place in a class-based society but society changes during the 20s and 30s there's much more willingness to challenge the old order there's certainly a willingness not to be fed into the slaughter like there were in 1914-18 so I, I think when you look at the context there's nothing wrong with the material they just weren't harnessed effectively would be my take on it do you agree with those like uh, Max Hastings who posit that the average German soldier was superior to his British or, for that matter, American counterpart? No, I don't think so. I mean, again, it depends what you mean by superior. I mean, a very academic response. I mean, it depends what you mean by superior. Um, I think at times they're more highly motivated for, you know, I think you know, well-established reasons. Um, national socialism had taken a hold. The ideas of nationalism, um, the ideas, the Nazi vision, in, you know, caught the imagination in some ways. It was a radical view. It was a, a world-altering view, which, which animated many, certainly junior officers. If you read the likes of Omar Bartov, etc. But then, if you say read Nicholas Stargardt's, you know, super book on, on the German war. Um, you know, he highlights the extent to which the war was viewed by Germany as a defensive war, you know, surrounded by enemies on all sides. The German soldier was fighting an intergenerational war that would decide the fate of the Western world. Um, you know, kind of Lord of the Rings, kind of epic kind of stuff. So the material is no different. It's just in many ways, I think, that in some ways the... I, more time is spent by the Germans in inculcating collective morale, and really the British and Commonwealth armies lag behind in terms of an understanding of that. They develop it over the course of the war, but they're always up against an ideological vacuum. What is the, the positive purpose of the war rather than simply the negative purpose of the war? Um, and then you can get into debates about you know who was given better weapons or better training. But I would cert I, I'd be very slow to say that the material, you know, the human material was any worse. You have to look at it in the context of what they were told, what they believed, how they were trained. And at times, German performance was superior. And then, quite frankly, at other times, British and Commonwealth performance was superior. Uh, we wait into this a little bit, but it would be correct to say that, unlike the Great War, where the imagery, and to some extent, I suppose, the reality uh, was that the average junior officer was someone from a minor public school. That was not really the case in the Second World War. I think, you know, my understanding of that is it becomes a much more democratic army over the course of the, of the war, that you get more, if you will, uh, kind of state schools, um, grammar school graduates becoming officers, much more of a um, kind of a movement from the ranks into leadership over the course of the war as casualties um, amassed and just a bigger number of officers were required. So you get this, maybe, you know, Alan Allport's book, Bloody Mind, uh, Brand Off and Bloody Minded is a super read as well. You know, you get this kind of civilianization of, of, of the professional army as a greater degree, greater kind of proportion of the army, you know, it, it's from the citizen, it's, it's from basically ordinary citizens, and that they bring the ideas and creativity from um, from the home front, from 
domestic world, from the world of business into the army, and the army becomes more effective as a result. So I think that dynamic does play out. There is an aspect of the book which we haven't covered, which but which is important in terms of the overall um, thesis of the book, which was that, that in terms of the Commonwealth, there is a basic division between those societies, I'm thinking particularly of Canada and South Africa, which had a divide uh, between the different uh, ethnic groups and those um, to mean Australia and New Zealand, which did not. In the former, conscription was ruled out um, a priori, and in the latter, I think, uh, at least in New Zealand, perhaps Australia as well, there was some degree of conscription. Can you elaborate on that and how important that was in terms of performance of these uh, four different armies of these four different uh, members of the Commonwealth? Yeah, I mean, in some ways it, it does relate to some of the stuff we've been talking about, right? So where you have homogenous um, communities who feel a very strong sense of connection to the motherland, to Britain, it's much easier to compel these individuals to fight in Britain's um, in Britain's war. So there's effectively full conscription in the United Kingdom, apart from Northern Ireland, and in New Zealand, pretty much, I think, from May 1940. In Australia and Canada, where you have you know, substantial minorities, let's take you know, Irish Catholics in Australia, French-speaking Canadians in Canada, um, the decision is really made that you can have conscription for home service, i.e. defense of the, the homeland, but it's only volunteers who should be tasked with going overseas to fight away from the homeland. Um, and there, I mean, all through the war, there are these tensions. So the the home service chocos, as they're called in the in the Canadian Army, are seen as you know much less effective, perhaps at times unfairly so, and um, much less effective. And you know, you know if, you, if you buy the idea that morale is is a key component of combat effectiveness, the fact that they are you know, less less motivated to fight does does matter in terms of in terms of outcome, and you get the similar um, degree, the similar problem with, with the Canadians and the, the home service um, conscripts, if you will, in Canada are called wonderfully zombies, and you get this extraordinary story in 1945 of the zombie mutiny. I mean, you couldn't make it up. This is the Second World War, not some science fiction um, movie. So there's a there's a there's a crisis in um, in the Canadian infantry formations in Northwest Europe in 1944, casualties are much higher than they'd expected in infantry formations. So they need new, more men. They need more men. So they send for some of these home conscripts um, from from Canada, from the west coast of Canada, to come and help out. And about half of them, you know, vast number of them, uh, proportion of them, basically abscond on their way across Canada. And in the end, they only get about... 4,000 of the 16,000, or tiny proportion anyway, of the 16,000 men that they expected to come fight in Northwest Europe. So you see again, I mean, something that we're not, we don't talk about this, the zombie mutiny, I think, is a really huge part of the story of the Northwest Europe campaign in the final year of the war. But we, we try not to talk about it because, I don't know, it doesn't shed the positive light on the Allied experience. But it, in many ways, it t- teaches us a lot about the frictions that are created by war, and especially that are created by war in countries where there are multiple identities and affiliations. And so it was, you know, it played out in really interesting and complex ways. If you take South Africa, you have, you know, Afrikaners who are deeply 
deeply hostile to the British Empire. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of Afrikaners join organizations that are explicitly pro-Nazi um, and try to undermine the South African the South African war effort. So in many ways, you know, Field Marshal Smuts is, is fighting, you know, a war outside of South Africa and then a war inside of South Africa, a war that he's probably more concerned about to ensure the cohesion of his own of his own state. And that's not even you know, we have to, without even talking about the mass repression of, you know, black and black South Africans in um, in their homeland. So the you know the frictions within the empire that we sometimes gloss over really played out in terms of mobilization. Then it played out in terms of morale and commitment to the war. And then naturally, it filtered through to the battlefield and how these formations performed. In the case of the uh, Indian Army in the Far East, wasn't the key variable in its recovery um, from the debacles of uh, 1942 uh, the fact that, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that in essence the Japanese did not make any incursions into India proper after their victories in Burma in 42, and in essence uh, the front was quiet until 1944, in which case they faced a very, very different Indian army than they encountered in 1942. Well, there's plenty of, plenty of fighting going on um, throughout this period, and often it's it's not particularly successful. What I would, what I say, the key. To, if, if you're going to pick a key determinant, I think for the performance of the Indian Army in the Second World War, it's training. Um, it's very, very hard to convince. I think it proved very, very hard to convince the ordinary Indian soldier that there was an ideological kind of underpinning to the war. I mean, to fight for democracy and freedom, and yet to look at your own country and see quite clearly that it's neither democratic, really, or free. Um, it's, it's pretty devastating, I think, when it comes to morale. Now, the armies, the Indian army tries to inculcate ideological fervor by discussing the Japanese atrocities and engaging the Indian soldier with some of the ideas that underpin the war. But on the whole, the way to motivate Indian soldiers was to look after the Indian soldier's family, to ensure that the Indian soldier would come back to a better world. You know, not dissimilar to the experience of every other component of the of the British and Commonwealth armies. So, in 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 a reality, I think where there's an ideological vacuum, how do you turn um, the Indian soldier into an effective fighting machine? And it's training. It's training, training, training again. They create you know vast training um, regimes to to teach individuals how to live in the jungle, survive, how to feel comfortable, to get over their natural fear of the claustrophobia of the jungle, the heat, the exhaustion. And so by 1944 and 1945, I think the key thing that's changed is rather than effectively a, a mob of untrained in, you know, Indian youth, which is kind of the way it was described in 1942, you have <coughs> excuse me, effectively a professional, you know, or as close to as professional armed forces as you, as you might want. And so the performance of the Indian Army in 1945 in Operations Capital and Extended Capital, where they basically make a mockery of the Indian of the of the Japanese forces uh, that are left in Burma, is is is, is really quite impressive. So tra- if you're looking for you know a nice silver bullet, I think it's training. Um, although the book goes into the kind of the, the the interrelationships between all the factors that 
that were at play in the turnaround of the fortunes of the Indian Army in the Second World War. Uh, following from that, if the Battle of Imphal had been fought a year earlier, do you think the results would have been the same? <laughs> no, not a chance. Um, I think they needed an extra year, really, to, to bed down in the new organizations that the Indian Army developed to train and train and train again. I think, you know, even, even Imphal, which is rightly, um, you know, c- celebrated as an impressive victory, when it came to uh, the, the pursuit phase, to really annihilating the Japanese forces, the army was still, the Indian Army was still not sufficiently professional and trained to, to outmaneuver, to, to move at pace, to penetrate and surround and force Japanese forces into capitulation, accepting that they were very rarely willing to surrender. So, I, you know, I think it, it, it probably couldn't have happened a year earlier. I mean, it is remarkable in many ways when you think what was going on in 1942, that, you know, two years later, the Indian Army could win any battle at all. It was extraordinary. Uh, going to the post-war period, post-war being in this case purely in Europe, not in the Far East, uh, you say that in the case of the United Kingdom, the soldiers' vote in the 1945 elections was, quote, decisive, unquote. But then you admit that, quote, it is impossible to prove outright, quote, um, if so, how can you empirically justify the, your initial contention? Yeah, it's, it's kind of building a bridge, isn't it? So there's, I think there's a, again, there's a sense in a lot of the literature that the soldier's vote is important. Um, and it's very difficult in many ways to, to judge exactly how important because maddingly, um, one of the one country that doesn't, you know, doesn't keep these wonderful voting statistics for, you know, 3945 is, is, is Britain as hard as I tried to find them. Um, I am working with uh, Dan Todman to try and see if we can find a way to, to, to break down the figures, doing some clever maths, but that's that's another project down the line. So really, I mean, I think, I guess it's it's, it's about the accumulation of evidence that's, that's pointing in the direction that seems to, to make sense. When you look at how all the soldiers were voting um, across the Commonwealth, you look at the really consistent left-leaning vote across all components of the Commonwealth armies. When you look at how you know, so the statistics I engage with, you know, point to a greater degree of left-leaning vote amongst those who were closer to to danger, closer to combat. So those, say, fighting in Northwest Europe in the Canadian context, were more likely to vote for strongly left-leaning parties, quite you know, decisively so, than say soldiers further from the battlefield or civilians back home in Canada. When you look at the censorship summaries, which again and again point to um, point to this left-leaning radicalization of the soldiers. It builds a picture of it builds a picture of a radicalized army that is deeply dissatisfied with the status quo, um, and deeply dissatisfied. Particularly, you know, blames the conservatives for for all life's woes. You know, perhaps unfairly so, but that is the way um, it worked out. And when you look at, if you just kind of, I suppose, you look at some basic numbers, it builds a pattern. It builds a pattern to me that seems to be um, powerful and convincing. Um, but yeah, I totally accept. I mean, the the um, that that piece of evidence that absolutely sends it home is is unfortunately absent in this case. But I hope the book builds a convincing picture 
um, of the radicalization of the troops and how the troops and their social network um, could well have, and I think likely did, influence the outcome of the 45 general election. How would you respond to someone who would say that, in essence, the, your book is, in terms of its argument, the learning curve thesis of the Great War in terms of the British Army, plus your findings on morale? Um, the first I've heard of it. It's certainly interesting. Um, I mean, okay, so the learning curve thesis um, was initially very powerful. And I guess more recently has been, you know, roundly criticised. I think as kind of too smooth, and um, that you know, learning was much iterative. It was complex. Um, there was step backs as well as step forwards. And I think in many ways, what you do, I mean, there's no, there's no two ways about it. The, you know, the British and Commonwealth armies of 1945 are more, were more effective than the British and Commonwealth armies of 1940. Now, the book goes into, you know, great detail on, on, on how those forces were transformed. And again, there are steps forward, there are steps back. There were moments where the armies learned from each other. There were moments that they did not. Mistakes were made. Experiments, some worked, some didn't. So I think it's, I think what you really see is a dynamic human organization where a lot of people are striving really hard to, to do well. Um, but it's difficult. Um, there are some structural things at play in terms of the relationship between the individual and the state and Churchill's willingness to kind of countenance social change that kind of undermine morale. And so you've, you've, a, you've an institution trying to find a way to solve problems faced with these problems. And I think the, I mean, I think the armed forces probably come out of the book relatively well. Um, you know, a lot of senior officers such as Ronald Adam. Um, were reflective and, and you know, were willing to change and found novel solutions to complex problems. And so I, I wouldn't say, I think a learning curve, I think, would be much too simplistic to describe what the book is about. I think it's it's really about looking at all, and even I think just saying that the book is about morale, I think is probably unfair too. So I think it's, you know, some of the the really super new sources are on the topic of morale, but what it's doing is it's integrating morale into the more well-trodden stories, such as the role of leadership, such as the role of doctrine, you know, such as the role of technology. So it's, I think it's giving morale a fair crack of the whip, perhaps arguably for the first time when you, you know, in terms of looking at the, the whole war and the British and Commonwealth um, performance in the whole war. And then it's a messy story, one of steps forward and step backs, um, heroes and villains, won battles and lost battles, disaster to victory. Um, I hope it's a compelling story. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Mm. The centrality of fairness. That states to survive need to treat their citizens with respect and develop a sense of cohesion that individuals feel that connection with the state. Um, you know, if I was being critical, I'd say, you know, the British state of the interwar years didn't, you know, and, and maybe the empire, full stop, didn't achieve that sufficiently well. And as a consequence, when they called on their people to fight and perhaps die in a second global conflagration, at times they struggled to mobilize them effectively. 
And you know, when you're talking about world wars, you have fine margins. Small decisions can have a big effect. And by not creating a, I think, a country that really functioned for everyone, you, you left a country, there was a country that was weak. Your, your power is dependent upon justice. Um, so I think there's a really positive story that comes out of the book in terms of how you create a cohesive and meaningful state, and that state will survive. Um, those that don't will be less effective and less and live long, less, less, less long, I suppose. I would like to thank you very much, Professor Fennell, for being so kind to speak with us today. I might add, of the 20 or so books I've read for podcasting so far this year, this is by far one of the best. I managed to read it, even though it's uh, 700 pages plus some uh, appendices at the back, uh, in one week. And I think I highly recommend it to anyone who is interested in military history, social history, or political history of the war years. Uh, so this is Charles Coutillo. Thank you for listening to New Books in History, the podcast channel on the New Books Network. Again, thank you, Professor Pinnell.